0: Well, let's take our Bibles and turn in them. We're going to go straight out of Zephaniah into Haggai today. We're going to look at the first chapter. There's only two chapters in this book, so we'll be here this week and, God willing, next week, and and then we'll probably pop back on into the New Testament for a while. But I've just been really having a lot of... Fawn, hopefully you've been uh, gleaning and gaining insight. I know I have as we've been going through these uh, minor prophets as of late. So uh, Haggai chapter 1 in a message that I've entitled, Consider Your Ways. So let's take our, our hearts to the Lord. Father God, we're just so honored to be here today to worship you and to wait upon you and to, Lord, it's our desire to hear from you. We want ears to hear you, God, meaning not only do we want to be hearers of your word, but we want to respond appropriately and be doers as well. And so, God, we just give this time to you. And we pray that you'd speak as only you can. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, the year was 536 B.C., <laughs> And the southern region of Judah had been conquered and carried into captivity by the Babylonians just as God had... Uh, decades before forewarned And now decades had passed And the prophesied time of captivity Had come to an end and Babylon had fallen to the Medo-Persian Empire Which had just risen uh, To the place of being the world's superpower And under the decree of King Cyrus Who was, uh, you know, the, the 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 king of the Persian Empire uh, Ezra, uh, we have the book of Ezra Ezra um, uh, could somebody just pull my volume down just a little bit? I feel like I'm yelling at everybody. Just a little, thank you. Uh Ezra, the priest, and the scribe took nearly 50,000 Jews and returned to Jerusalem for the express purpose of rebuilding the temple. Now, Cyrus had even made a generous donation for that purpose, and upon their arrival, the first thing they did was to rebuild and restore the altar and begin to make burnt offerings to the Lord, and the work was starting strong. And you can find all this, it's all available in the book of Ezra that serves as the historical background of the prophecy of Haggai. As a matter of fact, if you read the book of Ezra, you'll find Haggai mentioned more than once in uh, his writing. But th- by the second month of their second year in Jerusalem, they began the work of laying the foundation. And when it was finished, there was a grand and glorious celebration. There was a shout of praise, there was singing, there was celebrating, there was the Giving of thanks. But as you might anticipate, whenever God is moving, whenever something is going on that's grand, that glorifies God, the enemy will come against it. And long story short, due to the intimidation and the opposition from their enemies, along with the eventual political pressure from Persia under a new king, the work stopped. Ladies and gentlemen, 14 years went by, weeds began to grow over the foundation. The people had grown complacent and indifferent toward the work of God, and they had essentially given up on the project that prioritized God and had reprioritized their lives to focus on their own homes instead. And this is where the prophet steps into the picture. The year is 520 BC. But listen, maybe, maybe that's you. Maybe you were once excited about the things of God. You were excited to serve the Lord, to sacrifice for the Lord. There was no work too hard. There was no service too menial, but due to contention, maybe strife or pressure from from other people or even attacks of the enemy, maybe you've kind of grown weary over the years. As a matter of fact, maybe it's even been years since you've really engaged in serving the Lord or sacrificing for the Lord. You've simply decided that it's easier and a lot less headache to focus on your own life and to tend to your own world. It happens, doesn't it? Dedication is met with difficulty and Difficulty can lead to indifference which causes us to discontinue the work. Be that the case, the word of the Lord through Haggai is for you. His words now enter the equation of your life as well. And here's the short of it. It doesn't really matter how long it's been since you've served the Lord. It's never too late to turn it around and get it going now. And so if you're a note taker, the breakdown for chapter 1 is A, stop making excuses. B, consider your ways. And C, serve the Lord. So if you're with me, let's turn our attention, beginning here in the very first verse uh, of the, the prophet of Haggai, where we read that in the second year of Darius, or perhaps Darius, depending on how you pronounce it, in the sixth month of the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, To Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoi. the high priest, saying, well, we'll stop right there. A couple of things you'll notice when you begin this brief book. Sorry, my little mic cords not connected like it normally is. Number one, Haggai uses these. He's incredibly specific as to who and when he's writing. He actually gives several specific chronological markers throughout his writing. Uh, The first thing that he tells us is that the word of the Lord came to him in the sixth month of the second year of King Darius. Now, This, as I mentioned earlier, was the king over Persia. And uh, Darius became uh, king of Persia. Actually, I talked to you about Cyrus. Darius became king of Persia in 522 B.C. And so what that tells us is that this prophecy came to him, to Haggai, in the year 520 B.C., And he tells us that the word of the Lord came on the first day of the sixth month. Now, depending on the calendar you use, that means either August 29th or September 1st. But why does Haggai refer to this pagan king rather than Judah's king? Well, it's because Judah didn't have a king. Let's remember that Zephaniah, now we just came out of the book of Zephaniah, and he was the last pre-exilic king prophet, meaning he was the last prophet that spoke to the people of Judah before they were carried off into exile. So now Haggai pops up on the scene as the first post-exilic prophet. Now, Zechariah, if you're into these things, would be kind of in conjunction with Haggai here, and then about, if my chronology is not too far off, about 100 years uh, later, Malachi would be the final word of God uh, to Judah, to Israel until John the Baptist would break silence to make ready the way for Jesus Christ. But we have Zerubbabel, which means sown in Babylon. No doubt this means uh, he was uh, born in captivity and he was appointed, notice, to be the governor, not the king. He would still be subject to Persia but the governor being a descendant of the last legitimate ruler of Judah. And we see Joshua, who was the high priest. And these were the two leading figures in Jerusalem during the difficult days of rebuilding the temple. Now look at verse 2. The word of the Lord came, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This, people says, the time has not come. The time that the Lord's house should be built. Well, hey, look, Haggai, no reason to beat around the bush. Tell us what's on your mind. He gets straight to it, and he hits them with an accusation of procrastination. They're making excuses for not being about the work of the Lord. And family, it happens to this day, doesn't it? Perhaps you've discovered that there's always a reason To put off or to procrastinate when it comes to serving or sacrificing for the Lord. You know, we've spoken of this often as it pertains to calling upon the name of the Lord that you might be saved. One of the most effective weapons of the enemy is to whisper in your ear, you know, not that there's no God, or not that there's no truth, or not that there's no heaven or no hell, but simply that there's no hurry, that you can live your life, that God will always be there. You can get to that later. Well, listen, the same holds true, not only as it pertains to being saved by the Lord, Lord but let's pres- let's presume you've called upon the Lord you've been saved by the Lord and now you're considering well how should I serve the Lord or in what way should I sacrifice for the Lord and the enemy seeks to assure you that you can always get to that you know next month uh, or after you've bought your house or after you've established your career, or after you have your family, then you can really engage in the work of the Lord. But as the saying goes, it's never the wrong time to do the right thing. What is it that God has called you to do? What is it that He has placed in your heart to be about in serving Him? How is it that He's gifted you spiritually, or practically for his glory, listen to me, don't buy the lie that you can always get to it later. Later never comes. If you're waiting for everything to be right or everything to be in order, it'll never happen. It's like when you bought that book on procrastination and you decided to read it later. (laughs) The time has not come. The time that the Lord's house should be built. And I I want you to notice there in verse 2 that God calls them this people. Did you notice that? Rather than my people. Why? Well, because they weren't acting like his people. God's people have a heart to serve him to be found pleasing to Him. They're willing to sacrifice for Him and place a priority upon Him. And these people, well, they weren't about that, at least not anymore. And we wonder, what were they looking for to assure them that the time was right? I mean, what evidence did they need Hadn't God moved King Cyrus all those years ago to, to free them? Didn't he commission them to return to Jerusalem for that very purpose? I mean, he even returned treasures to them and made a generous donation of both money and materials to them for this express purpose. And God had protected them with all that loot on the treacherous journey back from Babylon to Judah. They had scripture, guys, God had prophesied through Isaiah Isaiah of Cyrus by name some 200 years before his birth. Isaiah 44, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall perform all my pleasure saying to Jerusalem you shall be built and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. And again, I have raised him up in regard to Cyrus in righteousness and I will direct all his ways and he shall build my city and let my exiles go free. Ladies and gentlemen, clarification and confirmation of God's will doesn't get much more direct than this. Why then did they abandon the work? I mean, were they thinking that it would be smooth sailing? Well, I mean, why do we get the impression that if we're in God's will, we'll only sail upon smooth waters? No resistance, no opposition, only easy work. I wonder what Moses would say to that mentality, or Joseph, or David, or any number of the prophets. I suspect that the apostles might have a thing or two to say to us who've adopted such a mentality. There they were with their Lord, you know. After a long day's ministry by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus said, you boys, get on the boat. I want you to cross over. I want you to go to the other side. I'll send the multitudes away. So they got in the boat. They headed out to cross over. And you know the story. Evening came, winds arose. And there they were out in the middle of the lake. And the winds were roaring and the waves were crashing and they were in fear for their lives. And for hours upon hours, they were rowing against and fighting the opposition. Here's the kicker, Jesus sent them out into it. They knew they were in his will. They were only obeying his word. Should have been smooth sailing. Or should it have? Does God's will always ensure smooth sailing Paul might want to talk to us about that shipwrecked three times a day and night bobbing around in the open sea rough waters you guys are not always indicative of being out of God's will we should anticipate resistance and warfare when we're pursuing the path that God has placed us on but the work was hard The land had been neglected for some 70 years. There was enemy opposition. There was political pressure to stop. And so they interpreted these things as, well, it it must not be time. You know, their dedication was derailed through the difficulties, and they became, well, the word is indifferent. You know, anything this hard well, we can't say it's not God's will. We see that, but it must not be God's time. And evidence of complacency is found in excuses. But let's remember, you guys, these weren't bad people. You know, I mean, of the hundreds, guys, there were hundreds of thousands of people that were carried off into captivity. And when it came time to be released, when the decree went forward, you can return, only about 50,000 had a heart to return. You know, the people had come to a place where they had it pretty good in Babylon. They'd grown accustomed to their surroundings. Many of them had prominent positions. But these were the ones who committed to returning for the glory of God. And so what's the take home? Beware lest we allow difficulty to derail us in our dedication to God. Now in verse 3, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Notice, God has this way, doesn't he? He just knows how to clear the debris. He knows how to take away all ambiguity and just paint the picture quite clearly. The primary problem wasn't found in all their adversity, though that may have been where it began. But the heart of their problem was in their misplaced priorities. You see, it wasn't time to focus on God's house, but we have plenty of time to remodel our own houses. And not only that, though times were tough financially, as we'll see They spared no expense, scrimping and saving and borrowing for themselves, but couldn't manage to muster any support for the temple. You know, when God speaks of quote-unquote paneled houses, he's speaking of the cedar paneling that had to be imported from Lebanon. It was the kind of covering that kings used. And honestly, you guys, the problem wasn't that they lived in paneled houses. It was that they did whatever they had to do to ensure their personal comfort and luxury while all the while the temple was in ruins. They were content to let the cause of the Lord suffer so long as they enjoyed their creature comforts. Instead, they should have felt like, hey man, there is no rest until the work of God is is at least as prosperous as our personal lives. They should have been willing to sacrifice as much for the work of God as they were to make themselves comfortable. It's interesting how that difficult times caused them to cease working on God's house, but not their own. And again, perhaps it started innocently enough. You know, there were obstacles in the construction, preventing the progress, couldn't get much done at the temple job site, and they were tired of their homes being a wreck. And so, you know, they started the remodel. I mean, after all, shouldn't our families come first? Let me say this with all sensitivity trying to navigate this topic like uh, walking on a tightrope, you know, trying not to lean too far to one side or the other. Shouldn't our families come first? This is a common kind of a, well, let me just say yes and no. Listen, it is true that we should focus on family first. It is true that God measures our Christian character first by the men and women that we are at home, not by the public display that we put on at church, but who we are behind closed doors with those whom we're most comfortable around, our family. You know, some people have a wonderful kind of countenance and vocabulary uh, in the public assembly. But when they get home and close the door, man, they've got a mouth that would, you know, make the proverbial sailor blush. So what kind of husband are you? What kind of father are you? What kind of wife or mother are you? And so, yes, it is true that our, our home comes first. But let me speak to the other side of that balance for just a second as well. It's entirely possible for you to use your family as a smokescreen, as a rationalization or a justification to hide behind when the truth is you just don't want to serve, you don't want to sacrifice in any measure for the Lord. And furthermore, it's entirely possible for you to allow your family to become an idol in your life whereby the only thing that you really care about is you and your family. You've got no heart for the lost, no heart for the work of God. And so long as you and your family make it across the finish line, you really couldn't care less about the rest of the world. But it's a delicate line that we walk. You know, some people err to the other side. They're so committed to the work of the ministry, so busy about church business, they neglect their family, and they need to reprioritize some time and attention at home. But others are predisposed to exalt their families in an ungodly way. And rather than teaching or leading their children in the things of God, they inadvertently wind up teaching their children selfishness or self-indulgence. Because you're leading your family, but not in any way that demonstrates sacrifice or service in the things of the Lord. But in placing family first, guys, we want to lead them in what it means to place God first in our lives. And allowing our lives to be used for His glory. Again, it is a delicate line, but we have to walk it. I would say it's not God or family. It's God and family. Family. And perhaps Joshua said it best when he said, as for me, notice, and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, time forbids, but excuses for not being about God's work or supporting God's work are numerous, aren't they? I mean, we see the need. We recognize that somebody needs to meet the need, but we're just too busy. It's just not the right time. Hey, you know, the altar is there. Maybe this was the mentality of ancient Judah. You know, the altar is there. We can sacrifice. At least we're getting by. Well, God forbid, may it never be said about the position of your heart or mine that it's enough for us that the work of God is, well, it's getting by. Hey, we can go to church. We can worship. The basic needs are met. Isn't that all we need? God forbid. God forbid. We should have a heart to see the work of God going forward boldly, making an impact in the community, reaching many for God's glory. But too easily our lives become cluttered and clouded by personal interests and pursuits, and it's never the right time to prioritize the Lord or the things that pertain to building His kingdom. Or might I even take it one step further and say, even placing a priority on personal spiritual growth? Look at verse 5. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat but do not have enough. You drink but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves but no one is warm. And he who earns wages earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Look, in verse 5, the Lord calls the people and he says to them, Consider your ways. Think it through. Come, let us reason together, God is saying. When he says, consider your ways, more literally, the Hebrew is put your heart on your roads. It's time for some serious self-examination. Look at where your heart is and the road that it's on. That's the idea. Look at the direction it's taking you. Is it really the way that you want to continue down? Do you really want to continue to prioritize and pursue your own thing at the expense of of God's glory and God's work and God's ways? Look, I know, I know you'll change it all around later, right? The words of Haggai ring in our ears kind of like an alarm clock, don't they? I mean, it's like we might not like it, (laughs) but we need it to wake us up and get us going. Verse 6 sounds typical of nearly every modern American to me. I mean, working hard, getting little in return. The things I pursue don't satisfy. It seems like I should have enough when I look at the numbers, but for some reason I'm left with little to nothing from paycheck to paycheck. Just can't seem to, to get ahead. But God is telling the people through Haggai very plainly that it's because of mismanaged priorities. You eat, but you don't have enough. You drink, but aren't filled. The way I teach this principle to my kids is like this. The flesh is never satisfied. You cannot, we cannot find fulfillment in the things of this world. Conversely, Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, notice for righteousness, for they shall be filled. It's interesting, isn't it? God says to them, the reason you aren't getting ahead is because I'm trying to get your attention. Your priorities are out of line. When you prioritize yourself, God says, I'm going to subtract from your life. But when you prioritize the kingdom, I'll add to your life. Remember these words, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be notice added to you. Or as they would have read it in the Old Testament, Honor the Lord with your possessions, with the first fruits of all your increase, and so your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will overflow with new wine. Guys, that's the principle in play here. And again, you know, they're writing things off as tough times or bad luck, but God was trying to get their attention. Now, guys, that's not to say that the only way God disciplines his children is through financial hardship, okay? But we should consider our ways, you know, the road that we've set our heart on, and see where our priorities lie before it takes a crisis of some sort to wake us up. And again, I'm not saying that it's wrong to have things, but rather as a child of God, you'll never be truly satisfied in or by the world. Set your heart on the spiritual, on the eternal. If you want God to honor your life, then we're to honor God with our life. Are you following me? Okay. Now look at verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, again, notice, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I might take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that is in ruins while every one of you runs to his own house. And therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. You see, the problem wasn't that they had a nice house, it was that they neglected God's house. He says, my house is in ruins while every one of you runs to his own house. Now, I'm just going to go out on a limb here. And there may be a number of you that kind of want to saw it off behind me. And that's okay. But the priority that we place upon the things of God, practically, financially, the whole thing, speaks volumes about where we're at spiritually. What's my priority? The essence of verses 7 through 11 is set yourself aside and serve the Lord. He says, Go up, bring wood, build the temple, that I may take pleasure in it. God would have us concern ourselves with pleasing Him over ourselves. Guys, can we just be honest for a minute? We spend enough time doing that and I'm not saying that we don't need prayer because we definitely do, we definitely do, but sometimes we just need to get to work, you know? Work should be supported by prayer, not neglected because of pretended spiritual service. Oh, I'm really praying that, that you know, that that happens, or I'm really praying that we, that comes together for you. Well, sometimes that's great, but let's just, hey, man, let's get some elbow grease going, you know? And it's not, you guys, that God dwells in temples made by hands. Church buildings are not his holy habitation. But the way that we tend to and take care of these buildings, uh, in large part, reflects our spiritual priorities, our love for him, our desire to serve him. Uh, Dr. G. Campbell Morgan, some of you may be familiar with him a number of decades ago, said it like this, whereas the house of God today is no longer material but spiritual, the material is still a very real symbol of the spiritual. When the church of God in any place, in any locality, is careless about the material place of the assembly, the place of its worship and its work, it's a sign and evidence that its life is at a low ebb. In other words, our heart should be to please and to glorify God. And too often, we run to our own homes. That means we're excited to be about our business, but not so much when it comes to God's. Think about that. Verse 12, then, so God throws down the gauntlet, right? Then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest with all the remnant of the people notice obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the presence of the Lord. Glory, what a wonderful response to the word of God. And might I say rare as we see the prophets often exhorting the people and the people not responding, but they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. Guys, this is is such a key. They didn't weigh the options. They didn't examine the alternatives. They didn't try to negotiate the terms. They simply obeyed God's word. It's been said faith is not believing in spite of evidence. It's obeying in spite of consequence. Doesn't matter what the world says. Doesn't matter what the ramifications or repercussions are going to be. We're going to, as for me in my house, we're going to serve the Lord, you see. It began with the leaders. They responded and the people followed suit. I love the phrase, and the people feared the presence of the Lord. You show me a person who obeys God and I'll show you a person who fears God. If you fear God, you're going to lead a life of active obedience to God. Now you can say you fear God, but if you don't obey God, do you really? Think about it. When people disobey God's word, it's not because they don't understand it. It's not because they're unable to perform it. It's because they're unwilling to submit to it. Okay? Now, Verse 13. Guys, we're going to finish up here. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. And so the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts their god on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of king darius and so the exhortation came on the first day of the sixth month and within three weeks there was mobilization there was motivation guys work was getting done God was stirring and strengthening the people and their resolve. Can I just say this? God will always equip you to obey His command. If He enlists you, He will empower you, He will enable you. I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. And He began to stir their spirit. God honors obedience. And guys, I want you to note that the stirring wasn't simply an emotional church service but it manifested itself in real forward momentum in the work of God. People, The people got behind it and things were getting done for the glory of God. And so we want to bow our hearts and ask God to stir our spirits that we might serve Him with gladness and move His work forward for the glory of His name. So let's bow our hearts. God, your word is always on time. And how we need the stirring of our spirits through the moving of your spirit. And Father, we're here and, and we trust, God, that we're not here coincidentally, but that you've ordained divinely from Before the foundations of the world, you want to speak to our hearts. So, God, help us that we consider truly our ways, the road that we've set our heart on, and the end to which it's leading us. God, that we might fear you, that we might serve you with all of our heart. We want you to be glorified. Both in our lives and in this place. So, while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I want you to think it through. What way is your heart set on today? What road are you going down, and where is it leading? You know, Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction and there are many who go in by it. Why do they go the broad way? Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Listen, Jesus is the only way by which we come to the Father. And I'm encouraging you to set your heart on Him today. I don't care where you've been or what you've done. I don't care how old you are, how young you are. I want you to know that God loves you, that He set His heart on you. The question to consider is, are you prepared to set your heart upon Him to turn from your sin to submit to Him to call upon Him that you might be saved not later right here right now so if the Lord is knocking on the door of your heart I I just want to pray for you Again, it doesn't matter who you came here with, who's sitting in front of you or behind you. If it's your first time here, you've been here for years, but something's churning in your heart today. Something's different. And the Lord is saying, today is a day of salvation. Well, I'm gonna ask you, if that's you, that you just raise your hand. And if I see your hand, I'll acknowledge it. God bless you, and God bless you too. You can put your hand down. Who else? The Lord is just... Ministering to your heart, saying, Hey, you know what? He's tugging on that that string. He's knocking on that door. And the Bible says that if you'll hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Open your heart and receive him today. Anyone else I can pray for? Okay, listen. The Bible is very clear that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But there's a beautiful and precious promise found in John's letter that if we will confess our sin he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness and so I'm just going to pray a prayer and, and I'd encourage you to follow along just from your heart again it's not the prayer specifically that saves you but God is responding to the heart he's searching in you but just come before him And just tell him, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I I confess to you. I agree with you about who I am and who you are. And I'm asking you, Lord, to forgive me of my sin to come into my heart and to fill me with the person and the power of your Holy Spirit. Have your way in me and help me to lead my life, to live my life for you from this moment forward the rest of my days. And thanks for putting my name in your book of life. I just want to encourage you that if you prayed a prayer like that, again, you've called upon the name of the Lord and the precious promise that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's been accredited to you. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things made new. And so now, guys, we're just gonna take a moment. I know we're kind of in this prayer posture kind of got our hearts and our heads bowed in this subservient kind of position and that's appropriate before the Lord. There's nothing wrong with that. The Bible is clear. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And I don't know about you but I need all the grace I can get. And so let's just take a moment and reflect on the words we've heard today. God has said, let's not make excuses. Let's consider our ways. That God would teach us what it means to to crucify the flesh, to cease serving self, We might walk in the Spirit and honor Him with our lives. Whatever that means to you personally, whatever that means for you personally, some situation that God is ministering to you. Maybe it's just something as simple as it's time to be involved or it's time to begin serving in a practical way. Maybe it's something deeper. I don't know but I trust that you're bearing your heart wide open before God in this moment. And as God shines a light on that, as though God were pleading through me, I encourage you, respond appropriately to that. Father, find in us hearts of repentance today. We can't do this without you. But we thank you that we can do all things through you as you strengthen us. And so, Father, we say be glorified. And God, I would ask that this body would be edified in Jesus' holy name. Amen.